1: All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Um, Today, because I kind of think that one day a year isn't really enough to honor our veterans, and besides, um, yesterday was taken up with all kinds of um, ceremonial kinds of things, I thought I would like to do a show today that took you behind the lines and um, to to uh, let two veterans um, tell their very personal stories. And I've called today's show Not Your Daddy's Military because these two guests do not fit the stereotype of what we think of when we think of veterans. Um, and And they have, in fact, their stories show an incredible amount of courage. Not that all veterans in my book show a lot more courage than I have, Um, but um, but I think they they each come from a different perspective that I think uh, makes their stories particularly unique and interesting. So um, they are Miyoko Hikiji, who is an enlisted was an enlisted female soldier in the Iowa National Guard. She was deployed in Iraq, and she has a book called All I Could Be, My Story as a Woman Warrior in Iraq. And also, today we're going to be hearing from John Quinn. His, um, he hid his cerebral palsy for 20 years, and he wrote about it in his book called Someone Like Me, An Unlikely Story of Challenge and Triumph Over Cerebral Palsy. So welcome to the show, both of you. Pleasure to be here.
3: Yeah, thank you very much.
2: Um, I'll start off, before getting into your stories, although um, this may be a reflection of it, I'd like to know what each of you did yesterday for Veterans Day. Miyoko, why don't you
0: start?
4: Well, uh, Veterans Day is sort of a work day for me because of what it is that I do, but I enjoy my work very much. So yesterday I started uh, with a live tweet chat about women veterans in the morning, Um, an NPR interview on Tell Me More, and then a luncheon uh, keynote speech to a group of women and young girls, so talking about the expansive definition of what a veteran means today and how that includes people that we don't always think about, like people, like women. Uh, So that was my day. It was a a full day, and it was a wonderful day.
2: Wow. And uh, I'm sure you were an inspiration to a lot of those women. Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, not just the women, the women at the luncheon, but but all all the media events that you did. I mean, and that has kind of become your passion. That's what you're you're devoted to these days.
4: It, It really is, because I think when I was living my story during my nine years of service, it was something that I, you know, very quickly recognized was that I always seemed to be sort of the deviation and not the standard, but there was no such thing as a second-class veteran. You either served or you didn't. And if you did, you deserved an equal amount of recognition. And for the women who aren't out there with a voice and, and don't have a passion for speaking or for writing, they still deserve that too. And so I'm you know, more than happy to, to represent them to make sure that they get uh, the respect and the celebration and the honor that they deserve.
2: Mm-hmm. And, Sean, what did you do yesterday on Veterans Day?
3: Well actually, my Veterans Day uh, celebration started last Friday when I was invited to a middle school you know, by a, a friend of mine who is six, turning, getting ready to turn seven. My buddy Camden invited me to his school and they were having a Veterans Day celebration. So I got to put on my dress blues and uh, along with about 25 other veterans uh, be uh, recognized by the middle school and uh, got sang to and uh, we said the pledge of allegiance it was a wonderful wonderful time i got to meet a lot of great great youngsters and uh and yesterday i just you know sat back in quiet reflection thinking back on my time in the military and and and, and accepting the thanks of of a grateful nation it's, it's just so wonderful to see i think uh, uh the outpouring of support that is coming i think more and more to the veterans is uh as time goes by, and, they, and people really feel the uh, you know the, the sacrifice that veterans do make in defense of this great nation
2: yes, um, I know, and there seems to be such a different attitude about that these days, which is really kind of worrying and we'll talk about that later you know the the ever since um, um, it's not compulsory <laughs> to join the military there there seems to be this um, you know kind of lack a a lot of the i mean not that it's a lot of spirit or a lot of uh, dedication is missing um, but we'll talk about that at the end. I want to make sure we have time for your stories um, so so Miyoka, let's start with you and your story i I mean I must admit as a woman, um, although I'd like to think that I have done some very patriotic and that I continue to do some very patriotic things for this country um the idea of joining the military has not exactly been on the top of my list, um, primarily because I would be scared to death <laughs> to to be on the front lines like you are or like you were and um i mean i you know i'll admit it it's just not something that that um I mean, that, that appeals to me, or that I would, <laughs> when I grow up, I want to be a woman warrior. I'd like to know, first of all, how did you, I mean, I admire you for that, and I'd like to know how, how that came about. How did you decide, when I grow up, this is what I want to be?
4: Sure. Uh, well, when I was 18 years old, you know, I was really drawn in by the ad campaign, Be All You Can Be, and that's part of where the, my book title came from. I was sitting on the couch, I saw two guys in a tank, you know, rolling and this Be All You Can Be slogan, and I thought to myself, that's what I want to do. I have to admit, not everybody has that revelation. Not, It's not for everybody. But I do tell people that, you know, if you can be your very best at whatever it is that you do, if you can be of service in your community, in your family, in, in government, then you are being of service. Not everyone is going to serve in the military, but that doesn't mean you can't take part in what makes this country great and free. So definitely it was, uh, you know, something very early on I recognized as I'm a pretty adventurous person. Uh, I'm a risk taker. And when I saw this opportunity to do something, you know, I was, I was ready to take that leap. I didn't know if I could really do it, but I knew I wasn't ever going to quit. And, and that was something that you know, saw me through, through some pretty challenging times. And I, and I do tell women when they say, you know, I don't know if I could do that. I do tell them, you'd be surprised. You know, when you're tested and you're, and you're tried and you're living in a military family or a close-knit family where people depend on you, it really challenges you to do things that you probably never thought were possible. It, it pushes your limits, and it, it certainly did mine and it made me a better person for it.
2: Yes, I would imagine that. Um, what did your parents, now you grew up in Iowa, right? That's correct. And what did your parents, when you told them that this is, these were your plans, what did they say?
4: Uh, my father had been in the Army, and so he had some familiarity about what I was going into. He was rather certain that the Army of 1995 uh, wasn't the Army of 1956 that he joined, and so he was a little concerned about what it would be like for a woman. But neither of my parents discouraged me from following my dream, and so they were extremely supportive of me. And, you know, that made a big difference for me.
2: And so you started out by being in the Iowa National Guard, is that right?
4: I started out doing a three-year tour of active duty. And then I joined the National Guard for six additional years.
2: I see, huh. And so what was that like? What was it like in boot camp? What was it like when you
4: started? Well, my first unit that I got to... Uh, had just converted itself from an all male unit to uh, opening up four or five job slots to women, so I was at the very beginning of where uh, combat units were letting women into jobs that were considered non combatants so the supply clerk, an administrative clerk, a mechanic they were allowed to be women. The, all of the other jobs were were men, so it was a very fast culture change for me to go from high school. 125 men and, and just a handful of women, but it did really prepare me more, I think, for what I encountered in Iraq than probably my service in the National Guard, where I was basically a citizen soldier, so that was good That was good training for me for when I really got to the big show.
2: So, okay, so what was it like being, you know, five or six women with 120 or so men?
4: It, it was extremely difficult i mean I, I i'll be honest it was it was very challenging i don't think that they were very welcoming they were very leery of our ability physically mentally to be able to handle the job and i and i think in many cases they did everything they could to sort of discourage us and push us out and so i i worked really hard to to make you know check all those boxes pass all of the tests the physical tests the tact, tactical the technical so that i could I could stand where I was standing in the ranks with them. And I think in, in doing that, I earned a lot of their respect, and I, and I proved a lot of them wrong.
2: Yeah, I would imagine, especially being at the beginning, I mean, there was a lot of, there was and still is, right, a lot of resistance to having women um, particularly closer to the front.
4: Absolutely. And I think when, you know, now that we've had almost 300,000 women deployed to the wow. Middle East in the last 12 years, you know that's how military commanders came together this spring to rescind the combat exclusion because they saw time and time again whether the whether we were in combat slots or whether the combat was listed as incidental or not. When we were tried and tested, women were were really passing in flying colors. They were doing their job. They were standing toe to toe with the men, and the the commanders couldn't deny that. And so I think that was a big part of that change in the spring to start letting, opening up the positions to women. Well,
2: um, what about, I would imagine, of course, that there would be uh, a lot of sexual tension with those kinds of, well, it was for a number of things. One, when, when the odds are, you know, when there are so many more men than women, but also in the sort of passionate setting, you know, um, life and death setting, of, of a combat zone, that there would be a lot of sexual tension.
4: What did you find with that? Oh, I think, that's, I think that's true. And I think with, you know, good training and good leadership, that that's something that can be worked out, just like any of the other problems that can come up. I mean, war is a chaotic environment. Nothing goes according to plan. And in the scheme of things, that's one of the smaller issues to deal with when you're talking about you know, ambushes or insurgencies. So that that was something that was certainly going on in the background. And, it, you know, it's not always a negative thing. You know, I had a longtime boyfriend in Iraq that I wrote about in my book, and that was actually positive. I was single at the time, so was he, and it was a relationship that was you know, positive. And, you know, young people who are single have relationships. It's, it's not always a bad thing. So I think there is a lot of attention now, on the sexual assault crisis in the military, and there should be because it's a problem. But I think when we pay attention to that, we sometimes forget that there are sometimes dual military couples and happily, safely, you know, dating couples that are doing very well, and good relationships are just good, period, mm-hmm. and they're not a detriment to the mission. Mm-hmm.
2: And did that, um, did that, it sounds like that relationship ended when you
4: got out of the military? It did. <laughs> to, to my surprise, it did. Uh, it just didn't work outside of the environment that we were in. Hmm. I don't think that was anything that either of us expected or knew because it formed while we were there. But when we got home, uh, we lived a few hours apart, and, yeah, it just didn't work.
2: Huh. Well, we do need to take a break. Um my guests, uh, we're talking today about Not Your Daddy's Military with my special guests, Miyoko Hikiji and John Quinn. We'll be hearing, um, about his story as well when we come back. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
6: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking about Not Your Daddy's Military with some very special vets, um, Miyoko Hikiji. She is the author of All I Could Be. My story as a woman warrior in Iraq and John Quinn, Someone Like Me, An Unlikely Story of Challenge and Triumph Over Cerebral Palsy. And, John, um, I was starting to ask you about whether you, uh, what your experience was in the military in terms of women being in your unit.
3: Yeah, you know, it's been nothing but positive. I, I was listening to your guest, and I just want to say that my experience, you know, I served on board the first combatant ship in the Navy, to have women on board uh, the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower out of Norfolk. And you know, when I got on board, uh, you could hear the grumbling, you know, of women, women, uh, serving on board this ship, you know, what are they doing here? This is not their place. But they quickly proved themselves to be top notch sailors. And that's, I think that's the key. You know, you have to prove yourself. I had to prove myself as, as a young man, as an, as an 18 year old boy. So, you know, we all have to prove ourselves in this world, and and once you can prove that you can do the job, that's I think that's the key. You know, and along with with good order and discipline. You know, I was a, I was a Navy chief, I was a Navy senior chief, and uh, you know, good order and discipline is going to rule the day, uh, and it's up and it's up to the enlisted leadership, it's up to the officers on board to make sure that uh, good sailors are going to be good sailors. Uh, No Mm. matter what the environment, so uh, yeah, nothing but positive. Some of the finest sailors I ever sailed with were females. So, uh, and uh, yeah, nothing but great things to
2: say. And you didn't find the um, and the men that you know who were on the ship didn't find um, the sexual attention distracting from their work.
3: No, I mean you're you're focused on the job. Uh, On an aircraft carrier, you're focused on launching an aircraft and, and being out to sea, which is a, a tough, dangerous environment. And, uh, you know, was, was it an issue? Were the things that had to be worked out? Yeah, of course. You know, when you're, when you're adding a new element into, into an environment, things have to be worked out. But, no, for, for the most part, you know, it was professionalism 100% across the board. Mm-hmm. And, and, again, it's, it, it's the leadership that's that example. Um, and we had great leadership on on that ship, and on and all the other ships that I served on with women. So, uh, I never really experienced anything but positive things.
2: Uh huh. So now take us back to your story. Um, you had cerebral cerebral palsy starting from when you were born, or?
3: Yeah, I was diagnosed with cerebral palsy when I was four four and a half years old. I couldn't walk. Uh, on my own until I was about four and a half uh, years old. Partially paralyzed on my left side. Uh, my left foot is two and a half sizes smaller than my right, and I kept it all a secret in order to serve for over 20 years in the Navy, never telling anybody that I had CP. Um, I retired, and I joined the Navy in January 1982, and I retired uh, in October 2002 as a Senior Chief Petty Officer, which is the second highest of the rank you can hold, and I sailed around the world on two aircraft carriers, a battleship, a destroyer, and even uh, worked with uh, the Navy SEALs for a number of years. I'm a founding member or a plank owner of SEAL Team Three in San Diego.
2: Well, I mean that's extraordinary. Um, Thank you. When you when you were in school, mm-hmm. you know, when you elementary school, and junior high school, and high school, and all that, were you trying to hide? Did you start hiding the cerebral palsy then? Or no. what kind of experiences did you have when you were growing up?
3: Well, my my experience, you know, was it was led by my mom and dad who never made my cerebral palsy the focal point in my household. You know, it wasn't, "Oh my gosh, you have cerebral palsy." You know, they let me go they let me get outside and experience life. You know, whatever I wanted to do they let me try. You know, you want to go ride your bike? Sure. Let's, let's, let's put some training wheels on there for you. You want to learn to ice skate? Okay. You know, we might have to start you out on uh, figure skates, but we'll get you there. Uh, and when I fell down, which was quite a bit, they didn't come rushing over all the time to come pick me up. They wanted to see if I would get up on my own. Uh, I think they knew that life was cerebral palsy. was going to be a challenge for me. And, uh, I think they were developing my mental toughness at, at an earlier age, and, and I need that mental toughness. I still use it today to uh, to get through my day. Um, you know, a lot of people don't understand that each case of cerebral palsy is unique to the individual. Uh, some have it uh, mild, like myself. Uh, some have a severe case of cerebral palsy where they might have to use a power chair or breathing device or something like that, but you know, I had to go through, uh, grueling physical therapy all through grade school, uh, I went to children's hospital a few times a week, uh, with my therapist who I refer to in my book as the administer of pain. And I was picked on, teased, laughed at, and bullied and had to deal with all of that. But, but bottom line is my parents let me try whatever I wanted to in life and, uh, they're, they're, my dad's motto to me was, just don't come home crying, saying it was too hard. You better, you better finish what you start, mister. Mm. So, you know, um, when I wanted to join the wrestling team, you know, I, I, I was allowed to do that. And when I wanted to join the Navy, uh, my folks, I think they had their fingers crossed behind their backs, but, you know, they said, good luck. And, and it was tough. And, in fact, I failed my first attempt to join the Navy. Um, I failed the, this duck walk exercise. We have to get down there in the catcher squat and put your arms out. Uh, I couldn't do that. I was six foot one, weighed 128 pounds, and I was too weak to hold up my own body weight. Mm. So I fell over, and the doctor said, what's wrong with you? I said, nothing. Huh. I said, well, son, we don't know what's wrong with you, but we don't want somebody like you in the neighborhood. Huh. So I came home, and uh, I went down in the basement, and I uh, did that duck walk exercise every day for a year. And then I went back. And then, again, keeping my CP a secret. And I was the best duck walker in that entire building, I'll tell you. I passed that physical with flying colors.
2: Hmm. So
3: really, that's, you know, that's just, that's the first chapter of my book. And, and that's, that's the jump off point of my story is it's hard work. And I would have loved, I would have loved to have told the truth from the very beginning about my condition. But if I had done that, uh, and I think uh, you guys can probably, uh, Occur with this, but you know the recruiters would have laughed me laughed me out of the building. You know? mm-hmm. I wanted to be judged on my ability, not my disability. Mm-hmm. So that that's why I kept it a secret and, and maintained that secret up until uh, up until the time I published the book.
2: So and what when was that? Well, I published the book. I think it's been out for three years now. And did you get, have you gotten feedback from people who, you know, who you knew in the service who didn't know that you had this?
3: Exactly, yeah. I got some great feedback. I'm a little nervous about what they would say, but uh, to a man and to a woman, they said, John, you're the finest sailor we've ever sailed with. Uh, to learn this about you just tells us more about you as an individual, and uh-huh. we're, we're, so, we're so proud to have sailed with you. And I, that's the highest praise anybody can give me.
2: And so what was it, um, do you think that maybe it was because of the cerebral palsy that you felt you needed to prove yourself, or what was it that made you, you know, work this hard to to get in? Well,
3: that's what I wanted to do. You know, I, I was just like, like your guest. I was 18 years old, sitting on the couch. Um, I tell the story in my book. I was going to community college one day, and uh, uh, I picked up all my... Uh, notes and my homework and threw it in the fireplace one day. My dad looked at me and said, son, are you having a bad day? (laughs) I said, no, dad, it's a good day. He goes, I'll give you two weeks. You better figure something out. And so I was influenced by two older brothers who had served uh, before me. And I remember my oldest brother coming home from Navy boot camp in 1973 with short hair and dog tags. And I just made such a big impression on me. So, but no, it's what I wanted to do. And again, my parents... Said, whatever you want to do, you can try. Mm-hmm. So, uh, this is a big try. And, uh, I knew that I had the opportunity and the ability to be a very good sailor in there. But you have to have the opportunity to show what you can do. And, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's why I kept it a secret. That's why I wanted to join the Navy. And I love the military. Uh, I love the uh, responsibility, the, the discipline, and, mm-hmm. and the hard work. Loved everything about it.
2: Miyoko, what what are your re- rea- reactions to this? What would you like to say uh, after listening to this story?
4: Well, it's a courageous story. So, first of all, John, thank you for your service. and And I can really relate to a couple of those points. First, that you wanted to be judged on your ability and not your disability. I want to be judged based on my ability and not my gender. And so, I think we that's something that we, you know, certainly share in common. And then, not we wouldn't. I wouldn't have had the opportunity. To, to do any of the things that I did in the military if somebody would have turned me down from the get-go because of my gender. So if you wanted the opportunity, that's why you kept it a secret. I think that's something that women are now, now that jobs are open to you know us being able to enter into, we're going to get those opportunities to prove ourselves. And I think earlier in your segment when you mentioned something about good order, discipline, and leadership, I think that that was really key. I I speak to a lot of women who are everywhere from, you know, Air Force fighter pilots who are officers to people like me who are Army truck drivers, and even though the military is a relatively small organization, there is a really, there's a a tremendous amount of diversity among the branches, among whether you're enlisted, uh, an NCO, or an officer, or a warrant officer, and I think that's where things get, you know, sometimes confused is we might get these stories about uh, people in the lower ranks of the Army and the Marine not being accepted, even though they've passed that test, they've met that standard, and still the resistance that may not be, when I talk to you know women who are in the Air Force and were fighter pilots, their combat exclusion was lifted a decade before it was in the Army. So I think they have a, uh, a different flavor for what that feels like with gender, because um, there were more women who had the opportunity to rise up through the ranks, take those leadership positions, and set that example before some of the other branches made some of those opportunities available. So I think there were a couple things in there that definitely I, I relate to.
2: Well, I, I hear the music to take a break, but um, of course we want to hear more about each of your stories when we come back. Um, we're talking today about Not Your Daddy's Military, And my guests are Miyoko Hikiji and John Quinn. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
5: Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel
2: talking with you today about Not Your Daddy's Military with my guest, Miyoko Hikiji. She is the author of All I Could Be, My Story as a Woman Warrior in Iraq, and John Quinn, Someone Like Me, An Unlikely Story of Challenge and Triumph over Cerebral Palsy. And obviously, as you've been hearing, um, they have very special and very courageous stories. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I see, I mean, I guess we can talk, I, I see... Um, it's sort of disheartening. I, I, I don't know. What do each of you think about the fact that there's no more draft?
4: <laughs> Miyoko? Well, I do think that there is a different... uh that different decisions are made in the country when a larger percentage of the population shares the burden. So with only about 1% serving in a military uniform today, that's a big job for the 1% huh. to educate the 99% on what it is that goes on in the day-to-day life to sacrifice. And, and I really do see that, at least in the last 12 years of war, asking you know one soldier maybe in that time to deploy five, six, nine times is really probably more than what we can ask our military members to do. It's, it's greater of a sacrifice if we're going to get to that point. I think we really do need to ask the rest of the nation to step up and be a part of that if that's something that, as a country, we decide we need to be involved in.
2: Yes, um, 1%. And, yes, it is really uh, it gets to be a more and more um, tremendous burden sending the same people back so many times, I mean, psychologically, of course, as well as um, the physical risks. Um, John, what do you think? Should there be a draft?
3: Well, I don't think so. Um, you know, I, it, it would be difficult to lead people who were drafted in the military. Um, well, I think it's very difficult to, you know, to supervise and, and to motivate somebody who, who, who would be drafted. So, you know, um, I don't know, but I do understand the benefit that military life would give, would give someone um, and I know that uh I think the nation would benefit as a whole and I know that uh you know the operational tempo and the number of number of deployments that our troops have made i it, is been stretched to the to the breaking point. So it's it's it, it's a catch twenty two I think. Uh, be careful what you ask for so I think because you just might get it. But uh I don't know. I think it will be tough.
2: Uh well, you know, I mean, of course nobody wants war, and so this is kind of, it's a very, um, it's a very difficult topic to talk about because it's not like, I mean, you know, it's not like we,
4: um,
2: I mean, it would be nice if no country needed a military, you know, um, and we were all peaceful and, and all of that, but that isn't looking like it's going to be happening anytime soon. And I, I just think there was a there's a different um, mentality, a different attitude um, w- that people have, men and women, um, when they have served in the service. There's a kind of there's a greater sense, and I think you know with each generation. Like um, I mean, you know, primarily it goes back further with men. So I'm not being sexist, but I mean when you compare men today. Um, Who, to the men who did serve in generations past, there is not that same level of maturity, um, bravery, um, responsibility. You know, I, probably I'm gonna get flack for saying all of this, but that certainly has been my experience. And yes, it's, you know, so what are you saying? We should all go to war and then you'll come back and be brave? I mean, you know, well, if, if necessary, I mean, since there still are wars, um, but i i really I really have noticed that, and it's it's you know now instead I mean there's just kind of less less of a sense of of purpose of what there takes i mean I'm not talking about everybody, but in a very general sense um there isn't that same that same um as i said maturity sense of responsibility um a, re- a recognition that you know. <laughs> The, the things in life that, that a lot of people complain about today are relatively minor compared to what what you experience when you've been
4: off to a combat zone. Um, what do you think about that, Miyoko? Uh, I agree with that. Uh, I think military service changes you because uh, it demands so much of you, and when you have the opportunity to be deployed or even just to train in other countries, you see the way that other people live, and you very quickly recognize that the liberties and the luxuries that you live you know, within every single day are not what most of the rest of the world experiences. This is the freest nation in the world, and it takes a tremendous sacrifice to keep that up, and that's exactly what that 1% does, either in peacetime or in wartime. So it, it definitely does. It did that for me. I don't think I could ever go back to, you know, flopping down into my pillow top mattress bed or, you know, having something, you know, when it's cold. it just We just had our first snow in Iowa yesterday, not realize that. I can go inside and turn the fireplace on. And, you know, those are things that I'll never take for granted again. And I do think that changes your life for the better when you see just how much you have to be grateful for, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. John?
3: Well, I agree 100%. You know, as somebody who's been on six deployments and, and traveled around the world, once you step outside this great country and see how, how other nations live, and, you know, that's the greatest feeling that that. I, that you can have is coming back to the United States of America and seeing and seeing uh, the flag fly and know that you're home. Um, I think the level of responsibility that's given to uh, to an 18 year old on board a ship or in an army squadron is, is tremendous, and uh, you know I think the youth of today, you know, it, things things today, you know, they go on cycles. Uh, you know, this country's been at war for. Ten years now, and I think uh, I think the nation is tired of war, but again, nobody hates the war more than the person who has to fight it, you know um, so you know it, it, it's tough uh, again it goes back to the draft question you know would the draft be helpful to, to the youth of today i don 't know uh, it would be it would be tough but i I know that it changed me as a young man, um, and it made me reflect. Yesterday, being Veterans Day, it made me reflect on on, on the little things that uh, that your guests are talking about. Just being able to sit quietly in my home and uh, be able to take a hot shower in the morning and, uh, and have to drink a nice nice cup of coffee. You know, those are the things that uh, veterans think about uh, and reflect back on when you know when you didn't have these things, and you just. Did your job because it was the right thing to do. It was your duty, and uh, yeah. So I don't know. It, it, it's a tough question. I don't want to. I don't want to force anybody to do anything that they don't want to do, heart, mind, and soul. Truthfully. Mm-hmm.
2: hmm I mean, I I think that there's this this sense of taking things for granted and not realizing like the sacrifice or not realizing. I mean, after nine eleven, there was a, um, uh, you know, people did feel passionate again about protecting the country, but I seem to think that that has died down a lot. What have you seen?
4: I would agree with that. I think we've been at war for so long now, and it's become something that we're accustomed to seeing on the news as today, uh, this soldier died in this province of Afghanistan, and we feel bad for 30 seconds, and we move on to the next story. I don't think it's infiltrated our lives the same way on, an, uh, on the everyday, because that percentage is so small. And that's why I think if more people were serving, or had to make that choice, or meet that sacrifice, that it would affect families in a different way, and we would really have to think about war in a different way, because we would know that we were going to be a part of it. We wouldn't be able to enjoy the gifts, the liberties, the luxuries, without being a part of that price tag. Now,
2: did either of you, um, were either of you trained on video games, on violent video games to shoot? No.
4: No, I didn't have any video games growing up.
2: No, I meant, you know, as part of the service.
4: No. That
2: that wasn't part of your training?
4: No. No. Uh
2: Uh-huh. Um... Do you sometimes get, you know, do you, other than on Veterans Day, do you sometimes get frustrated, feel, you know, feeling that people um, don't appreciate the sacrifices that you made or aren't um, aren't um, passionate enough about the country to want to protect it or to join the service, or do you get frustrated with that?
3: Well, you know, I you know I answer that question when it, when it's posed to me. I say, look. Right now, there are people around this world that are standing to watch, right now, for your freedom. Hmm. You know, here it is uh, in, in Tucson, Arizona, it's, it's it's almost quarter to three, and there's somebody on a ship standing a watch for me.
2: Hmm.
5: And I
3: never, I, you know, and people think they take it for granted, but it's okay to take your freedom for granted because there's other people out there that are on the tip of the spear, you know, uh, wearing the uniform so that we can go about our day and, and, and enjoy the freedoms that we have. But, but does it get frustrating? Yeah, sometimes, you know, but that's, it comes with the territory.
4: I agree with that. It's, it's a little bit frustrating, but I, I, don't take it, I don't take it too personally because uh, it's not the military service isn't for everybody. 100% of the population isn't going to be able to make that sacrifice. There are lots of things that people can do to show their gratitude and their thankfulness for living in a free nation, uh, but certainly, sometimes I think for women veterans, it's very easy to get overlooked more often than for for male veterans because you know we don't look the part and we don't have a, a very good representation in the media as far as what we've been doing in the last decade. So I do I do uh, feel like there is a little bit that that can be taken for granted that some of those people who are standing watch are women. Hmm. Yes. Do you
2: think that some of the um, you were referring before to? Uh, the news of like all the sexual um, harassment suits and so on or rape suits uh, do, do you think um, what do you think that that has done to the
4: to the image of women in the military I think it 's actually uh... <laughs> it's a very da- it's a very dangerous ground. I think when you talk about women in the military and then as soon as you enter into that equation anything that has to do with sexuality, good or bad, it turns the conversation away from the great service, you know, the great accomplishments, the great achievements, the rising in the ranks of women who are doing a good job. Mm-hmm. And so we have to find some balance. I want to make sure that women who are serving who aren't victims of of sexual harassment, who aren't victims of sexual assault, who are, uh, you know, doing their jobs and getting recognition and, and leading and being led by good male commanders, that that is a part of what it is that we see. But I, I do think, you know, it would be wrong to not pay attention to, you know, the travesty in the military right now of the mm-hmm. sexual assault crisis. It's absolutely something that needs to be talked about.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, we need to take another break. When we come back, we'll hear more from our guests We're talking about Not Your Daddy's Military with uh, Miyoko Hikiji and John Quinn. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. So stay tuned.
5: Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk.
1: And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com
5: The Internet's number one talk station. Number
6: one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you today about Not Your Daddy's Military, going beyond yesterday's pomp and ceremony to hear the very real and poignant stories of today's guests Miyoko Hikiji, and John Quinn. And I'll give you their websites at the end of the show and tell you where to get their books. Um, I, I asked them each to provide a little, one of the little gems from each of their books, uh, an experience or some message that they want to get across that they'd like to share. So Miyoko, why don't you go first?
4: Okay, well, I think that uh, one of the... Primary motivations for me writing my book was so that it could be sort of a living legacy for the two members of my unit that lost their lives. Mm -hmm. But whenever I have the chance to talk about my story, I really want to share theirs as a part of mine. And that was Private First Class David Kirchhoff and Specialist Aaron Sissel. They were two battle buddies of mine. They made the ultimate sacrifice and for them is part of the reason why, uh, I wrote my book. And the other thing that I want to add to that is that also in my story, I wanted to be able to tell a woman's narrative to be a part of the larger story. I think a lot of men who read my story will be able to relate to a lot of the elements because I was a soldier like the male soldiers, and we did a lot of the same things, and it's not really a unique position to be in. There were some unique uh, aspects of my service, but overall it's a soldier's tale. And so I think just in adding to the story of what it's like to serve in the military in America, that was something that I wanted to share uh, for the two people that made that sacrifice in for my unit and for the 150-some people that I served alongside that did, you know, an unbelievable job for 403 days next to me.
2: Hmm. Wow. And, yes, of course, you get so uh, – it's such an intense relationship, um, you know, being that close and everybody depending upon everybody else for their lives and so on—that when they when uh, people die from that same unit, it, it is. It, I think it's hard for pe- for people who didn't experience that to totally understand the the magnitude of that. You know, of the closeness of the relationship. But but yes, um, you know, it's understandable that you would want to uh, memorialize them. Um, John, what about you?
3: You know, my book, Someone Like Me, it's it's not a military book, and, and it's not just for people with disabilities. Uh, it, it's, it's a book for anybody who wants to read a good book, but it's really a, a story of inclusion. Inclusion being the opportunity to succeed. You know, you have to have the opportunity to show what you can do. But, you know, we live in a society today that judges us very quickly. I mean, we have TV shows that, that judge people on talent and how they look and how they sing. You know, when people today... Uh, see somebody in a wheelchair or a power chair or maybe they're standing different and they're running different or looking different or walking different, they automatically think, well, that person cannot do the job. Well, that's, that's just not true. We need to start judging people on, on their abilities. And as long as somebody can hit the standard that society wants them to hit, whether it's in the military or business, then they should be allowed the opportunity to show what they can do. You know, give them the opportunity to try. Again, we don't do that. But through my story, I show that, yeah, I had to keep my CP a secret, but I stood every watch, I fought every fire, and I did everything that every sailor did, achieving the rank of Senior Chief Petty Officer. And I've shown what can be done if somebody's given the opportunity to to, to try. So if you're listening to this, everybody's got ability. Everybody's got something to offer this world. Everybody's got worth. I don't care... What anybody says, I don't care what they say. You know, you just have to you have to find your ability. You know, everybody's got something deep down inside them that they want to do. We, as a society, we need to nurture that and give people more opportunities to show what they can do. Whether it's women in combat, which I agree with one hundred percent, or people with mild disabilities serving in, in, in our in our nation or in our government, uh, we're in business. You know, there, there's a reason that the The disability employment rate in this country is about 21%, 22%, you know, because people don't think that people with disabilities can do the job. Nothing will be further from the truth. That's really what I talk about as I travel the country as a motivational speaker now. And uh, it's a message that uh, I think is starting to finally catch on with uh, people around the world.
2: Were there times... um when you were serving, when, um, let's say, you were in a lot of pain or and and you you thought to yourself um, either either you were afraid that someone was going to catch on, that there was something uh, only, that you weren't... O-
3: only, only, only every day. Huh. You know, uh, I had to be very self-aware. I had to be, you know, cerebral palsy. I had to put thought behind movement. Every time I wanted to move my body, still to this day, I to put thought behind movement. So I had to present myself... And tell myself, there's a constant running dialogue in my mind. Stand up straight. If you want to walk, pick up your foot. Set it down. Set it down. Okay. You know, nobody should ever have to keep a secret in order to live a life that they want for themselves. You know, it's okay to tell the truth. But with that, you know, let's, 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 let's bring the truth forward and and let's focus on the ability of people instead of the disability, because we we dismiss people. When we hear the word cerebral palsy, even today, when people find out I have cerebral palsy, you know, they automatically think, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm so sorry for you, you can't, Mm -hmm. you know, we can't hire you. Mm
4: -hmm. Like, what?
3: Really? Just, you don't know what I can do. Give me a chance, but Mm -hmm. we don't do that. Mm
4: -hmm. You know, John, I think you brought up a really important point, and that's there is a part of strength in any job or anything that you do in life that's invisible, and that's heart strength. And I think that's something that we see in the military. We have so many ways that are visible that we can test a person. Are your biceps strong enough? Are your chest muscles strong enough? Can you carry this? Can you do that? But when it comes time to do their mission, you might find a really large guy who won't get in a truck and go out the wire to go do a mission. Mm. That's because his heart strength could never be tested. And you might find a woman who had to work so hard to get to that place that she'll be the first one to volunteer. Mm-hmm. And that's something that the military is still trying to figure out how to do, and that's something that you've pointed out uh, with with having cerebral palsy, is that that's something that they couldn't test your determination in your heart if they didn't give you the chance. Mm-hmm.
2: And,
3: and, and medical doctors do the same thing with patients. They say, okay, well, here's the three-month projection for your child. Here's what your child will be able to do. We need to change mm-hmm. that conversation and say, look, your child has this condition, but... With hard work and determination, here is what here is what is mm-hmm. possible. We need to raise that level of standard up to to allow to give some hope to people to say, look, yes, you have this, but we expect great things from you. That's the lesson that my mom and dad uh, mm-hmm. gave me, and that's the lesson that I that I preach today as I travel the country.
2: Well, now I want to make sure, and, and both of you are are an incredible. Uh, lesson in heart strength and and overcoming i mean you know when you when you think of like the stereotypical um, military person uh, veteran uh, well let 's not say veteran let 's say t- of today when you think when you think about um, people joining the military who didn 't have things that they had to overcome in the sense whether it 's cerebral palsy or gender. Um, and and they still don't don't do it for often not very good reasons. And you two had to fight hard to get into it and to be able to serve your country and did so for years uh, beyond what would have been the normal ter- term of service. And so it's you're both incredible inspirations. And I want to make sure that we have time to give out your websites and the names of the books again. Um, Miyoko Hikiji, her website is all dot com because her book is All I Could Be, My Story as a Woman Warrior in Iraq. And John Quinn, his website is John W. Quinn, Q U I N N dot com, and his book is called Someone Like Me: An Unlikely Story of Challenge and Triumph Over Cerebral Palsy. You know, I think both of your stories should be required reading in high schools, um, not to force anyone <laughs> to draft anyone, <laughs> except maybe uh, uh, psychologically through persuasion. But, but, um, but, I mean, at this time, again, not to say that I'm against the draft, really. But I think that those to inspire people, as you were both saying, to inspire people to join and to protect our country would be far better than having to reinstitute the draft. But um, but I think people need to see, you know, people, high school students, who many of whom are lost. I mean, the kinds of things that are going on in high schools today are so unfortunate, people dropping out of high schools, which are even, that's even more unfortunate, uh, dropping out and not really having a life of purpose. Um, you know, if, I think if they read your stories and, and understood your heart strength and, and could be inspired to, to find some of their own, that um, this country and this world would be a better place. So thank you both for sharing. Again, that's Miyoko Hikiji, All I Could Be, my story as a woman warrior in Iraq, and John Quinn, Someone Like Me, an unlikely story of challenge and triumph over cerebral palsy. So thank you both for being here and for your service and for continuing to do the inspirational work that you do. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.